Howdy folks, Farmer Devin here with the Wyoming Agriculture Podcast. I'm here today with an exciting guest and our very first guest on the show actually, Deidre Homan with Mountain Horizon Hemp. Deidre founded this company in 2020 as one of the very first licensed and approved hemp farms in the state following the recent legalization of growing hemp in all 50 states. Through this business, she offers a variety of CBD salves and tinctures through her online store and her Facebook page. She offers free shipping on any purchases exceeding $50 and has product featured at a variety of retail locations throughout the state. I'm looking forward to an amazing interview with Deidre, but before we do that, let's pause for a quick word from today's sponsor. Zazzle.com. Zazzle is a people-powered online design platform that provides a creation and fulfillment service for small artists and designers across the web. Furthermore, they allow you to create or design your very own custom products on any of their base product options. In fact, I designed some stunning coffee mugs as gifts for my best man and my groomsmen, as well as my father and father-in-law on our wedding day this last year. Not only was the quality of the mug and the print great, I also got the mugs much faster than custom gift options I found on Amazon. And I order my business cards through Zazzle as their price for my custom design is much better than the competition. Support the show today by following my affiliate link in the show notes and I'll receive a commission off of whatever you buy or create. Alright, with our sponsorship out of the way, let's welcome Deidre Homan to the show. Deidre, welcome. Hi, how are you? Oh, doing pretty good today. How's your day been? You know, it's it's been good. Good. So we brought you on today um, to talk about your operation, obviously. Is there anything in that short intro that I missed or that you'd like to add before we get into the show? Um, I don't think so. Um, I, I would say there were uh, upwards of, I believe, somewhere between 27 and 30 licenses uh, that were given out throughout Wyoming. Um, so we would be the first in Natrona County, but, but not in the state. Okay. Nice. Well, that's good to know. Um, I, I figured you weren't the only one in the state, but definitely oh, no. some no, of the first wave. not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, kind of hard to build a, a market if you're the only uh, producer. Oh, very, very true. Plus that, we had to know we weren't the only, you know, slightly not sane ones, so. <laughs> right. Yep. There's definitely a, anytime you're doing something new, it's nice to know there's somebody else that's just as hippie as you are. <laughs> um, so can we get like maybe just a short overview of what got you started in hemp production? Maybe walk us through, uh, you know, your time after say high school that kind of led you up to this point where you've started this business. Well, essentially it wasn't even legal in Wyoming until 2019, uh, to, to have CBD you know, products and to be able to grow, um, so in, in following that, it was more of an interest in using the products more than growing. Uh, but once they established in 2019 and passed that you could grow, then Wyoming had to wait for the farm bill to approve the Wyoming plan so that the growers could actually be licensed to grow. And that happened in February of 2020. Uh, once that happened, um, one was able to basically applies through the licensing process, um, which is, you know, kind of a fairly astringent um, process to go through background checks and license your areas for either uh, pro, you know, 
production or growing uh, and processing. So we were got that completed in March of 2020. It was at that point, everything was time sensitive to, to pretty much finish putting everything together, even though we had planned it since 2019. So we ended up planning four different strains uh, on an outside grow. And it was learning by fire. Um, we didn't know you know, certain little uh, idiosyncrasies that the plants like. We killed a lot of them. Many things we had to do three times to get them right. However, we were successful in growing an extremely nice field. All four strains did very well and found that they were probably hardier than most, you know, would expect them to be. So they did pretty well with the Wyoming wind and the rain. Um, I can't remember how many times we had one-inch plants out there with 60-mile-an-hour winds, and they were just laying flat, and you just hoped for the best. Um, but they actually did very well with that. That sounds pretty uh, typical for Wyoming agriculture. <laughs> uh, and it was probably, I'm going to say the wind was worse this year probably than in prior years, um, which you know also made it difficult just in everything that we had to do you know, in the field. Uh, weeding is extreme. You need to you know, keep them off of those plants. Um, and a lot of that had to be done by hand. So my daughter and I spent many, many hours on hands and knees out there just, you know, weeding in between. And um, we did some where we started the plant before, and we did some on a direct seed basis. Okay. Um, so that, that gives me quite a few questions to go off of. I guess, did you have any uh, interest in farming in general? or farming with this particular crop uh, in years past? I mean, I know it wasn't legal to physically do it, but did you have, you know, say, an interest in it? We've grown hay for, you know, basically a 50-50 alfalfa hay for 15 years. Okay. And so so we just looked to turn a small portion of that um, into the hemp. So we licensed one and a half acres for the hemp and left the hay field pretty much alone. Because as with anything, if you were to completely eradicate your your whole field, then at some point too many people flipping over, and then the hay and alfalfa is is harder to get. So, um, so we just started small, which is you know I would advise for anybody that wants to start. Yeah, I definitely think that's wise. Um, seems like it adds a little diversity to your operation, but it doesn't necessarily uh, you know bet the whole farm on the operation going well, especially. And, and that's definitive. Um, you know, because your biggest factor and for success is not going over 0.3 on your THC level in those plants. And so going over 0.3 pretty much is destroy the whole field. Mm-hmm. So you never want to start out larger than, than what you can, you know, feasibly walk away from. Right. Yep. If it's, you know, every crop is kind of high risk, I suppose, but when you add the regulatory aspect to it, it involves a little more risk than, say, a tomato plant that you just have to worry about the natural uh, risks. So definitely. Yes, I mean, and then the information out there is, you know, really has to be sorted through to see what's, uh, what's real, what's not. Um, and as I said, it is hardier than people expect. Mm-hmm. Um, so that part of it was a, was a happy surprise since they were 
hitting temperatures even when they were small at nighttime of probably 34 at night. So it, it with our weather, it was uh, surprising to see that they did, you know, very well with that part of it. And they did okay with that near freezing temperature, huh? They really did, um, surprisingly. The direct seeded took longer to germinate with the cold temperatures. It, it, the first part of June was started out okay, and then it turned, and we had, you know, shoot about eight nights of, you know, pretty low temps, 34 where it approached at nighttime, and so it took longer for those to germinate than the ones that were started inside and kind of kept going. So it's, uh, you know, however they did weather that just fine. Nice. Well, that's good to know. I Yeah, I would have kind of expected, uh, you know, just intuitively that hemp would be a very, uh, you know, sensitive crop to the cold, not quite so hardy, so... Well, September 7th, they got buried by 10 inches of snow. Yeah, that was a... <laughs> so we had, uh, we had two strains that were farther along than the other two, and so we, my daughter and I stayed up all night long and, and shook those plants off. Um, except for all four strains ended up making it. Um, they, um, I, I can't say 100% of the plant survived it. However, uh, the, the main important parts actually survived it and kept on growing. So we started, um, we harvested the first two strains, actually the 10th, uh, the next day. You can't harvest until the state comes and, you know, collects their samples. And so I, so I have to back up a little bit and say it wasn't the next day, but it would have been that Thursday okay. um, after the state came. And so... Um, and that storm was on a... Was it on a Tuesday? That was on right? a Monday night. Monday night, yeah. And so you really couldn't even see the, you know, much of the field until about Thursday. Because um, mm. we were hitting about 33 degrees, you know, thir- you know as low as 30 uh, so about 600 of the plants got buried under snow, which I think in the end probably helped them somewhat, um, you know, but once the snow melted, they, they grew just not straight up anymore. They, a lot of them were actually more straight out, uh, just because their stalks had split, but it didn't slow them down. That's and impressive. so the, those last two strains we were able to harvest, uh, around October 10th was the very last harvest. Nice. Well, that's really, yeah, that's good news. I guess that kind of lends some credence to some of the historical growing of hemp on a lot of homesteads. Um, if yeah, it's so it, hardy. you know, they, didn't, they weren't unhappy plants in the, in the cold, so. That's good. Good to know. Um, let's see. So, okay, you mentioned four different strains. Uh, have you kind of noticed uh, in your first year a significant difference between performance on any of those strains? We did. Um, I would say, uh, I, although they all did very well, I would still say that uh, the jury's kind of out on one strain of whether we would do that again. Uh, the production of, for what we're doing probably wasn't as high in that strain as it was in, in one of its sister strains. Okay. So um, would you mind sharing those? It, it's, it's definitely tough as there's so many out there. Uh-huh. So trying to pick and balance out the strains that you're going to try in the area is is tricky um 
depending on whether you do an outside and inside, inside is a much more controlled environment. And so we have some going inside right now. And then, you know, the, that, depending on how those go, we'll, we'll know which four we'll do this coming summer. Okay. Um, and can you share maybe the four strains you've been working with? Uh, we had one called Sangria, one Aqua Woman, and we had a Pure Gene, two of those. One was a CBD strain, one was a CBD light strain. Okay, and the one that you said didn't work so well for you, um, I take it you're growing for CBD content. We're growing for CBD content, and so that's where there's so many strains. Depending on what you're going to grow for, if you're going to grow for fiber, for seed, uh, for oil or flour, hemp has such a variety of uses. And so it's also dependent on how much time you want to spend into the field. It's a little less time when it's for fiber or for hemp, and it's a little more hands-on per plant when it comes to, to flour and oil. We spent, you know, basically, you know, X amount of hours per day out in the field. And that's, you know, checking over each plant to see if there's something that plant right there is missing versus the one right next to it. And it's amazing how you're in the same soil, but one will need something a little bit different than the other. Yeah, that diversity. that's a little bit harder when it's outside. Uh Uh-huh. A little more variable there. Now, so obviously, um, your first year in any enterprise, you're going to spend a little bit more time uh, working with the crop and getting to know it yourself. Um, but do you think like all that labor is inherent to uh, growing hemp for CBD, or do you think that a lot of it is uh, perhaps a little more labor intensive because of the high value of the crop? I mean, obviously, if uh, you know if you had some lettuce get destroyed or something, that's probably not as big of a deal. Uh, to your bottom line as something as valuable as hemp? You know, it's part of it. Um, But whether the value of it is zero or ten, the plant tends to take that much care regardless. Uh, So, you know, would we have spent more time? No. Uh, Would we have spent less? No. Some of the time we did spend was in learning errors because there was, you know, just, it seemed like three was the magic number. Sometimes we had to do it three times to get it right. Mm-hmm. So the knowledge we learned last year that we take forward into this year will help dramatically on some of that. Um, however, you know, when growing for flour and oil, you don't want males. Uh, so even though you purchase feminized seed, uh, those hermaphrodites do pop up. You have to check those plants, you know, physically each and every one, every other day or so. If one were to hermaphrodite, it, it could just basically seed your whole crop. And so different things like that that aren't going to change. It, it doesn't matter, you know, what you do. Now, we did have probably different percentages of hermaphrodites um, between the strains. So some strains are going to be better than others on those. Right, yeah. But that's kind of just one, you know, one example of things that you, you know, have to, have to stay on top of. So that, that would never change. And when we talked earlier, there was, uh, we had a little bit of discussion about some of the, the challenges with the crop itself. Um, I guess first off, for a little bit of a baseline, uh, you mentioned that you guys have been doing grass and alfalfa hay. Do you guys do anything else besides hemp on your farm? Uh, no, no, just, like I said, the, the grass... 
hay and and we did of course do vegetables things like that last year but uh hemp would probably be the the, the main on this side and we won't uh, you know we're already licensed for 2021 however we license the same area mm-hmm. uh, i it, it's a good a good starting spot for and to leave it at the at about one and a half acres plenty of room for what we need and and like i said leave the hay and, and grass alone as far as uh you know, being able to take care of the, the horses and, and all of that out there. So we wouldn't we wouldn't expand on that probably for quite some time. So with your uh, vegetable gardening, I'm guessing that's predominantly for, like, home use. You're not really doing that. It's predominantly. Um, we probably planted way too many yellow squash last year, so I, <laughs> I could have probably fed Casper on those. Um, they, they happen to like what the hemp likes also, so they, they produced quite well. Um more that's more for for our own use okay um so i guess what i'm trying to get at with that uh to after establishing that um in your experience with other crops are you finding that the hemp is more or less susceptible to let's start with just weed pressure it's about the to a degree it's the same okay um however when they're smaller it's probably probably a bit more um open it takes them a while once they start actually getting large enough to to provide the shade where that starts backing off um but the nutrients that you give them also of course you know feed anything else in the the near neighborhood so keeping everything else back is 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 a good idea okay um otherwise it's you know they they tend to grow very very well with them <laughs> if you don't and you mentioned uh hand weeding is that because you think that there's not or you guys didn't really have access to mechanical equipment that would work with the hemp or was it just a matter of circumstance it, it was partly circumstance partly our spacing um you know we'll have a little bit different uh, plan this year whereas hopefully we can at least get a cultivator down there there wasn't a an absolute ton of information necessarily out there. Um, there is, but you have to really kind of go through it and, and pick out the best parts of, of everything and put it all together. So having not, you know, we're in Wyoming, we haven't been around hemp farms, you know, or any kind of cannabis farms. So you haven't even really actually walked through one to, to see exactly how they grow and, and how they they spread out so we have you know knowledge i think was our biggest uh burden last year is that we it was a constant if i wasn't working out in the field i was studying so a very steep learning curve uh, it's a learning oh it's a steep learning curve and farming um, always is but i mean yeah with a crop that steep. obscure uh, like i said <laughs> we would three times minimum to get it right on so many things uh, we just decided it was that was our our lucky hitting number, so you know, got to where you would do it and, and realize I'm probably going to be doing the same thing two days from now and, and then two days from then, and then, then I'll have it right. But um, and, and So we've got over that, some of that hump, and I'm sure there's still going to be more that, that we find. But, you know, overall, we had plants upwards of six foot tall. They were all very healthy. We had very little loss as far as plants dying in the field. Um which I had expected much different there. I, I really thought 
you know, we'll get them X amount of far and we're going to find out because everything changes. The nutrients they need in every stage changes. Yeah, yeah, they're definitely, from my understanding, a lot more nitrogen heavy during their vegetative growth as most plants are and then switching over to needing a little more phosphorus and some of your other nutrients for uh, developing those sexual organs and flowering and such. Yes, I mean, you know, your main flowering and, um, you know, and then, uh, you know, to boot, your water levels change, you know, their, their water needs change throughout that time period. Um, it, it's all a balance with the overall temperature, the overall humidity. We're in a lot drier climate. So, you know, balancing out their water needs uh, was interesting. We finally got, you know, a lot better handle on that. And then we had to shoot. I don't know how many weeks it was where we're 95 degrees. Oh, I remember that. And it the, was rough. And the plant's pretty telltale. It, it somewhat tells you when it's uh, defending itself uh-huh. against high heat. or um, And there's different things you can do to give it a boost during that time. That's good. Yeah, having a, a responsive crop is definitely helpful, uh, especially when you're trying to learn. I, I just wanted to say that six feet sounds pretty impressive. Um, you know, I mean... Obviously, you might see claims online about a lot of plants reaching uh, 8 to 12 or even 15 feet, but I find that a lot of times uh, with some of the crops I've grown, what is claimed to reach, say, 10, 12 feet in other climates, you're lucky to get two or three around here. So I'd say six is pretty good. <laughs> six was good, and, and I actually topped them. Um, oh, okay. They probably would have reached 8 to 10. <laughs> However, I, I was a little concerned with the wind. Okay. that they get that far and it's going to snap them mm-hmm. um, their stalks are phenomenal by the time you go to harvest and you pull those out you're just amazed because they're huge you know however not knowing any different i i rather directed them to to bush out a little bit more so they had um you know they were planted oh approximately five foot apart and were touching each other in many spots so we had, you know, I just tried to direct their growth out a little bit more and, and against that wind. Nice. Um, so what are you doing with all your waste? I mean, is that a regulated thing as well? Do you have to burn it? Or are you allowed to compost it? Uh, what do you tend to do with that? What we'll be doing is actually chipping it and then putting it back on the field for this year. Okay. So and so we just have a, a pile that's that's thoroughly drying, and, and once that is, we'll uh, chip that out and, and use it right back on the field. Nice. Okay. So kind of uh, reapplying the the waste as mulch, almost uh, Masanabu Fukuoka style. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, it'll, it'll just become a mulch, and then from there on out, just kind of keep uh, getting put back into the field. Nice. Okay. Are you doing any kind of intercropping um, in between crops or during off seasons? No, not at this time. Okay. Um, you know, we'll have to, of course, look at that. But the way we have it structured, it's uh, no row will actually even be the same. So the the plants will be planted in in different area basically than they were the year prior. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's it will just be a matter of, of soil testing and and all of that, which we're probably getting ready to send in the 1st of February. Okay. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I mean, there's probably enough of a learning curve without trying to figure out uh, what it would go with, well with an intercropping, say, 
whether that's a winter rye or a clover or whatever mix to keep yes. the soil growing. Um, that's <laughs> that's sure. probably a few years ahead before we start looking at those those kind of studies uh, to see what goes well with it. Is what I would think, but yeah, I and, and for now it's I there's enough on the plate. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it it's somewhat of a plant that you probably will either develop a, a good passion for or decide that you just want to you know go get to the cbd or or flower and and not mess with growing so i mean it's you probably develop that passion for growing or not it, it you know at times can be um you know frustrating like i said when you're having to do it several times this year we shouldn't have to do that so i'm, I'm rather looking forward to that part nice um, are you able to, I, I noticed that most of your products are value-added and not raw flour. So are you able to process on-farm, or do you have to send it to a certified processing center? How does that work? Yes, once you, harvest is pretty intensive. Um, it, it was about six weeks of harvest. Part of that time frame was probably stretched out due to the storm. So, it, but it's still probably about four weeks, I would say, of harvest. So... One has to have an area large enough to dry it in. Wyoming is so new to this that we ne- did not have an up and running processor last year, and I'm not sure that you know per- that we'll even have one this year. Um, but it's taken from the field and, and dried, and what they call bucked, and, and then it's stored in you know specialized bags. From there, it goes to a processor slash extractor that can extract the CBD oil, and there's quite a few of those out there. Some of them, you know, I actually I should back up and say many of them want large quantities. So that's probably one of the areas that it's harder to face in Wyoming is that unless you have, let's say, you know, 10, 20,000 pounds, sometimes they don't even necessarily want to look at you. So However, there's a bit want... of a barrier to entry there on quantity. Yeah, and, you know, the... Um, you know, value-wise, you're also then looking at another probably large uh, chunk of, of money that goes out towards the processing. So at that point, unlike other crops, when you get it done and it's and it's bailed and it's bucked, it's not ready for sale at that point, although you could. It just depends. But there was probably a real large influx of biomass, is what they call that, out there. So... It's probably not very lucrative to grow it if you're just going to, you know, go for growing biomass just yet. I think the day will come that 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 part of it comes back. So we did go through and, and have ours extracted. Do you think that maybe there's a, a, I don't know, enough of a market for, say, like seed or fiber production uh, in the state as a whole? I, I think that, that the majority probably did cedar fiber, and I believe they did very well. Okay. Um, one was up around the Alban area, one was around Torrington, um, and those have probably been the more publicly visible ones, and I believe that they did very well with their crops. And it seems like perhaps the fiber I saw where they had made, you know, two-by-fours out of those. Oh, wow. And so those are a different kind of strain there, they tend to be less... Uh, you know, less wide and they grow, you know, 
more up. We'll put it that way. Mm-hmm. So 10 to 12 foot tall. Um, and more of a get out there, plant it, and, you know, intend it, you know, uh, I'm, I can't say that it's just like a hay field, I, you know, but it would be a little more towards that without having to, uh, you know, worry about individual plants and, you know, and trying to get them essentially to produce uh, more oil, you know, or a higher percentage. So, but I do think those were very, very successful crops, and I know they went through some of the weather also. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, it seems a little more akin to hay and that you're essentially growing a crop for the uh, residue and harvesting that. Yeah, and, I, and like I said, I, being as that I, we didn't grow for that, I, I can't, can't vouch for that. But I, mm-hmm. I know it's a little less, at least, hands-on than, than if you were growing for flour. So one of my biggest questions with hemp um, during this whole process has been, you know, obviously there's quite a big... Uh, regulatory hurdle to get into growing the crop is it something that is so severe that it you know wouldn't be feasible for somebody to grow at say a garden scale if they just wanted a small amount of seed for the family like is that going to be obviously the seeds cost prohibitive at this point in the game uh but is is the regulation a big hurdle to that well it's it's not so much of the regulation as it would be for the costs of getting into it. Um, You know, your cost of licensing, if you had, you know, even just one strain, you've got to pay the state to come out to test and then you have to pay for the lab tests um, at that point to get state approval to harvest the crop. So you're, I guess it depends on size um, of whether it would be you know, worth it to, to grow a garden size. Um, so are you paying the state uh, per strain that you're growing as opposed to, like, per plant or per square foot? It's per strain. Okay. Um, what's that and cost usually like? I'm sorry? What's that usually costing you to, to get each strain? Well, you know, just, just for their tests, which is actually does no... It doesn't really do me any good beyond being state approved for not being over 0.3. Those tests were upwards of a thousand, and then your original license cost of 750. So, you know, you would be looking at a, a minimum of probably 1,300 dollars just for the licensing and the testing. Okay. For your for that garden, so. I guess that comes down to how big is your garden. Um, well, and I guess, you know, I mean, <laughs> the seed itself, of course, has a cost, and we could probably expect that to come down over the years as the market grows, but if you're putting $1,300 into a crop, typically most people want to see a return on that investment, so it it seems unlikely that very many people would want to grow hemp uh, at a garden scale at this point. Yeah, because that would be just one strain, mm-hmm. and that would be if you do not test it in between. Um, you know, a wise idea is to, to test your field beforehand. We got fortunate. We didn't, and, and, but we should have, um, it, and seeing if it was going to get close to that point three. But there does come a point where there's so many other costs involved that, uh, you know, that you probably don't, and, and you should have. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, 
we all four of our strains did pass for state approval, so we did okay there. Um, if I change to another seed that's you know a different strain, you're you would have that same factor again. So then you're going to want to send off for testing, you know, midsummer, um, and just kind of get an idea of where that that level is. And is there but, any allowance in the law for you to, say, hire a private testing facility and submit those results to the state, or do you have to hire the state to test? Well, the state has to come out for the final test. Uh, so so you have to you know, use them to come out. And, and you give them, of course, they have the uh, A-OK to come anytime they want to, which is, which is great. So... As far as having, you can send it out for tests on your own, you know, during mid-crop before you have that final harvest test. But it's, it's a tricky time. You have, you know, reports to file. It's it's very paperwork intensive. Uh, reports to file that would be within 15 days of harvesting where they come out. And you can't, you know, until they come get their samples, you can't do anything. So if something happens odd like september 7th and all of a sudden you've got 10 inches of snow coming your way the best you can do is get out there and try to shake that snow off okay because you you know even though those two strains actually would have been okay to harvest as far as the plant went legally you couldn't touch them lovely so you know you have that little bit of risk there, so they, they always kind of say keep one eye on the market and, and one eye on the weather. Mm-hmm. Um, however, when it's a very abrupt storm, it changed from you know being a, a one inch maybe to, to nine inches shoot within 24 hours. There was just no possible way to, to get somebody here to take their samples. Yeah, that's one of the, probably the pitfalls of having the state so involved in the crop is their inability to adapt uh, as quickly as as you might be able to in the field. Um, Well, and it's, uh, you know, it it was definitely nothing on their end. Right. They they, they overall really wanted to see the crop succeed, and and they did um, put out their best efforts. Uh, But, you know, you're talking about shoot Labor Day weekend, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that that it really changed, and so that's just that's just going to be the way it is. Um, and and hopefully you have enough advance notice. The other two strains weren't even close to, you know, wouldn't have produced enough to make it worth it to harvest. Uh, so some of the strains go longer, some go shorter, but I think that's a variable that changes with. Um, in different growing climates. So I, I think that you could take one strain and say, hey, it, it actually finished a little faster here, um, and take it over to California. Maybe it doesn't. So that's another thing that's very new to us is is which strains will even do good in this climate. So the one that, the one that I said we wouldn't probably plant again. I can't say it didn't do great. I think it probably needed something a little different than what we gave it. Um, it still actually produced quite a bit, just not what the plant would be capable of. Uh, so, so it wasn't a failure and such. It just, you know, probably could have produced, let's say, a nine percent level when it produced a six. 
So I have to step back and say, boy, if I grow some inside and do a little experimentation with it, maybe that would be different of whether I grow that one outside again. Um, all right, so we were kind of talking about, if I recall, um, a little bit of some of the inspection process and then uh, performance of different strains. Uh, that that one that you mentioned was at, what, a six instead of a nine? I don't know if maybe you just threw those numbers out, but uh, do you think that maybe that strain would have performed better for another purpose, say like seed production or something, and just maybe not good for your context? No, um, I, I wouldn't. I, I think it just probably needed a much higher level of phosphorus, perhaps, okay. uh, than, than it got. I, I think it's more probably a nutrient, but it's hard to say. The cold could have affected that just a little bit different than it did the others. Uh, the others were a strain typically aimed towards CBD, whereas this one was CBG. And it, you know, while it's true that on many you don't get as much CBDG out of it as you might get percentage-wise on the others, um, it's all in a ratio. So if the plan is, let's say, 25 to 1, that's, that's a, a CBG to THC level uh, ratio. And so it, that one didn't make that ratio that uh, the other one that actually matched perfectly on, on the strain that um, the producer would limit. So, so that's part of it. You watch your, your ratios on your strains. Okay. Um, let's see. Try to come up with some other questions off the top of my head here. Um, so you mentioned you've been doing hay for about 15 years. Have you been farming in general longer than that, or just, uh, just that? Uh, no, mainly hay, and, uh, it, we've just done a grass alfalfa. Okay. All right, quick, uh, farmer's note here. Um, I had asked... Deidre and the interview with the uh, location of her farm, uh, it didn't really occur to me in the recording, but it's quite obvious that there's a little bit of a security risk in uh, disclosing that, particularly to the whole World Wide Web, um, and given the crop that she is growing. So I deleted that, and that's why it might seem like there's a little bit of a uh, discrepancy here in the recording. Uh, so we're just going to skip right to the end of that. Uh, where she continues the interview afterwards. You know what? There's a lot of people that think it's real. Uh-huh. Um, uh, you know, under under much good advice, I had cameras put up and all that, so we, we just typically say west of Casper. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to throw that at you in the middle. No, that's okay. That's okay. Um, so let's see. Any, I guess, anything else that you want to maybe talk about or discuss uh, before we kind of move on a little bit? Um, I don't think on that. I mean, I, uh, you know, I have some, you know, probably things that we can mention on CBD. Yeah, um, yeah, why not? You know, itself, because I think that's, you know, a lot of misinformation out there on that. Yeah, well, and with any new crop, uh, educating the consumers is absolutely crucial, so... Yeah, let's. Uh, so I was trying to look through and see. Harvest was pretty intensive. Uh, but yeah, mainly CBD, I think. So, uh, okay. Yeah, go ahead and fill us in on, uh, I guess, the difference between 
hemp and marijuana. Let's start with that. Well, I think I think this is such an area of mass confusions for so many people. We have been uh, doing some of the trade shows, and, and I have to say that we have pictures of the field up. We have pictures of flower. And we'll get every now and then get that person that walks by that you know in their head they're thinking, oh, my goodness, this lady's selling pot. <laughs> and uh, they look alike. They definitely smell alike. Uh, you can... You know, that field has an odor for quite some distance. Um, however, when it comes down to it, the defining factor is the THC level in the plant. And law dictates that as 0.3 uh, or under is hemp and over 0.3 is marijuana. And that's, that's Wyoming law. Although it would take much higher percentages of THC in a plant to actually, you know, give someone that actual high or psychoactive result. So many people think if it's not getting you high, why are you growing it? Well, CBD is the main component in our crop that, that we're dedicated to. And it's the second most prevalent of the active ingredients in cannabis. How it works is by interacting with the body's own cannabinoid receptors of which the body has two and so we have cb1 receptors which are present throughout the body and that's particularly in the brain and they coordinate move, uh, movement emotion um, mood memories and other functions you know even clear thinking and cbd or cb2 receptors are most common in the immune system and infect um, like inflame, inflammation and pain so what CBD does is stimulate those receptors so that the body produces its own cannabinoids known as endocannabinoids, and that's always a fun word to pronounce, <laughs> especially one of those repeated over and over and over again. Yeah, I'd imagine so, it'd be a, a tough one to pronounce at trade shows. I have this little song in the back of my head that someone gave me once that, you know, it's like you always have to listen to that in your head. Oh, can um, you sing it for us? No, I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> we, we want your listeners to stay tuned in. <laughs> so, um, so that's where, you know, that's where we wanted to to help with the growth of, of hemp was with the CBD production. It since marijuana has been um, illegal for so long, they weren't able to study the good parts of what it could do for you. And that's the CBD, which is, uh, like I said, typically always in a ratio in the plant. So in, in hemp, you would be looking at a high CBD ratio to low THC. And and so that's where, where our crop is dedicated to. And it did very well. I, I was pleased to, to find, you know, our percentages were good. Anytime you get too high you're going to be high on your point three. Uh, there's there's no getting around it. However, if you can get up to, you know, the ten eleven mark and stay within your point three, you did well. And and we had three of our strains do that. Uh, the CBD was a little lower, came in around six. Um, the quality of it itself was not any, you know, less than it would be at ten. You would just get less of it. And, and that's where CBG can somewhat be quite a bit more spendy. It's the mother of all of them. So it comes first, and it also means that you get less out of the plant. 
What's your uh, yield typically? I see, I mean, obviously you're doing the value-added products. Um, so assuming you had a 10% CBD content in the flour, can you expect uh, somewhere around like 8 to 9% yield in the finished product? Say if you had 100 pounds of uh, raw flour, could you expect to, you know, what would you expect to get out of that? Every level that they, that they process um, makes for a different quality of CBD. So for every time they extract, and, and what they will do is they'll take, um, you know, initially extract the CBD, it comes out into somewhat like a, a paste. And so we chose a CO2 extraction processor. Um, it comes out kind of like a paste, and then they take the, the fats off of the plant. And the fats um, are probably the even more hempy tasting of the you know of the uh, plant so for every time you take those off your yield is going to be less but you're going to have a lot cleaner product so what it when in the end you may have a 10 percent plant you know yield also depends on on how clean it's extracted and so if, if that is making sense yeah, I mean, it's not entirely to, up to the grower. He chose to have is, high yeah. quality and, and clean. Okay. So he took that down to where the it, it goes into a distillate form at that point. Um, if it still has remaining fats in there, it's it's a very uh, probably a, a almost bitter, you know, and you can taste that hemp for days probably. Mm-hmm. Um, so your overall yield is a little bit less, but your quality is better. And, and that's, we, we're going for quality, um, not necessarily to um, match every Joe Blow Mary that's, you know, that's out there. So then, then once you take it one step further and take it to THC free, and then that goes into an isolate. So then that's again, cuts down your yield. So there's no, you know, complete set formula. Um, I can just say that the cleaner it is, the less your yield's going to be. Okay. And, and I'd it imagine that... It's different to a hay bale if you had 20% weeds versus, uh, you know, taking it down to two. You're going to have less bales in the end if you take it, you know, down to two or weed free. Uh-huh. Going to definitely affect your yield there. I, I would imagine that... Um, likely a, a lot of your decision to uh, distill it more is probably to get that flavor out of there. Uh, if you're selling to a Wyoming market, it's probably probably more important than other markets to not taste like hemp. Do you think that's probably um, a true statement? I, my personal opinion is that it's not just flavor, mm-hmm. um, but the customer is um, getting a much cleaner product. And so, and that's not to say that there aren't many others that do the same, but I, I think that sometimes we look at, um, at the yield too much. Uh, we needed a balance of yield that will actually pay for the costs of the labor and the uh, actual growing expenses. However, we need that quality to sustain it. So I think Wyoming has the capability of, of growing some very um, high quality hemp plants. I think they liked the climate. Um, 
and I, I look forward to trying just a few different strains and not, you know, not solely because of uh, difference. We'll probably keep, you know, two of the same, but just keep adding a few different ones and see if we can't kind of come up with that um, one that just says Wyoming is, is its home. Yeah, I think it definitely takes some a uh, little bit of experimentation to find that strain. Uh, but it, it does, you know, and, and whether we even, I, I still say, and I and I say this to anybody that wants to um, start growing, is to not rely on one strain. One of the things that's that makes it harder is that most of your reputable seed companies are selling those seeds in in much higher number batches than you need for one and a half acres. And so that that's a hurdle hopefully they'll overcome and start selling a little bit smaller batches. But let's perchance say they, you know, your minimum order quantity of that seed might be 5,000. Um, and so at a dollar to $2 a seed, depending on what strain, you know, that's an initial investment right there of five to 10,000. Yeah, that's significant. And then if that strain doesn't grow, you have a lot of seeds. So there's there are some definite obstacles to, to get over. Are there any, uh, like, hemp growers co-ops in the state or anything where perhaps farmers can come in together to buy seed to save costs? Not at this point. Okay. Um, whether that happens in the future, I don't know. Uh, it, and that's, it, once again, it's, it's very hard. We, um, you know, I've... I've fellow grower and I grew the same seeds in different areas of the state and they turned out completely different. Mm -hmm. Um, But we did everything very, very alike. However, just a different climate. You know, even though I was in Wyoming, there's, you know, we've got different altitudes. We have different, uh, you know, much different climates across Wyoming. And so, uh, you know, the crops did not turn out the same, even though they were the same strain. So, just going from here to the other side of town probably could make a difference. Oh, absolutely. I've noticed um, in my years farming that there's the significant differences, not only in weather patterns, but soil types in and around the whole Casper area. I mean, you'd be night and day difference at the base of the mountain versus out in Antelope Hills. Um, yes. Or even... You know, so it's, a, you know, it, it's just one of those things that you can't, you know, that, that you're not being stingy to not say, but they're going to have to plant in that area and see how it goes. Mm-hmm. So probably something where the market would have to grow significantly before it would even make sense for farmers to get together on seed. I would, I would think so. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I now I could see it on the, the fiber and seed crops. I, I could see some kind of co-op forming for those. Um, yeah, those are probably a little more generalized on uh, breeding, I would imagine. And plus, I think, you know, it, I haven't studied those. I, I would suggest that they are. I don't know, though. Mm-hmm. Um, I know they did, you know, way more than one in both of those fields, I believe, that I mentioned earlier. And part of that is is uh, it's just a smart thing to do, just because if one strain goes hot, you're destroying that strain versus destroying your whole field. Mm-hmm. You know, plant it all in one. If it goes hot, it, you actually you have to pay to destroy it. You know, so it's, it's not a, a matter of the state saying, "Okay, you have to destroy it and walk it away." They they 
you have to pay someone to actually witness you uh, destroying those, that crop. So you can't just like light it on fire or till it in right there. You could, but you have still have to pay somebody to to, walk. to come out and you know somebody separate to come out and, and verify destruction of the of the crop. Wow. So it's you know it's regulated. It needs to be. Um, as I said earlier, it smells the same. It looks the same. You know, so they have to have regulations in place so that uh, it doesn't end up uh, end up being the same as marijuana. Yeah, that's their uh, their way of um, I don't know, just keeping the crops separate, I suppose. It is, um, and and being as marijuana is not legal here yet, I you know whether it is hopefully in the future, it it definitely has the benefits there, but. Uh, you know, who's, who's to say, I, I, you know, can only hope that within the next few years that they, they come around since it's all around us. But, uh, but for now it's, it's very, very strictly regulated under point three and, and your final product needs to be point three. And, um, you know, there's probably a lot out there, you know, the testing, you know, the, the amount of money we have just in testing is, is quite high. So it's, a, it's also a money-intensive crop, and that's, I, I guess I didn't see it until we grew it, the actual expense part of when you're buying CBD oil or salves or anything that is legitimate uh, CBD, but the the cost of, of going into growing is, is definitely there, and it, it doesn't stop. It, it's all the way to the end. Once you get the crop done, it's not ready to do anything unless you're going to, like I said, sell it off as biomass. Mm-hmm. And that market's pretty saturated. Um, and that's just coming from all these states coming online. And, you know, quite a few people jumped on to grow, which is great. I think it's going to be an alternative crop for Wyoming. You know, but you just need to keep it within um, the bounds of reason so that you are growing a quality crop that someone actually does want. You know, if that CBD level was, let's say, you know, three percent, it's going to sit as as pretty much worthless. So, not only are you looking at getting the plant to the very end, you you want to have a percentage of CBD in the biomass that is uh, desirable for someone to buy that. Do so you... yes, it's a it's okay. a very comprehensive crop. You know, when going for oil. Um, and I'm, I'm sure the seed side and the fiber also has those considerations. I just, I, I wouldn't be familiar with those. I would expect that perhaps maybe a little less detail in the in the management, maybe a little less intensive, but at the same time, you know, again, as a high-value crop. Um, yeah, and they certainly... still have to watch that point three level. Right, yep, um, so there's a lot know, of because constants because their there. startup costs, I'm sure, are, are tremendous for that much in seed. Mm-hmm. So do you foresee maybe, uh, you know, assuming in the future that cannabis is either legalized or decriminalized to grow, do you foresee maybe the costs of hemp production uh, and therefore the costs of CBD products and other hemp products coming down a little bit? I don't know that, you know, I don't know that it would be much less because you still have that dividing line of point three. Um, I know they, 
did file or attempting to file a bill to raise that 0.3 to, to 1.0, which would be dramatically helpful to the hemp farmers. Mm-hmm. However, you still have the need for THC-free uh, for those that uh, have to, you know, t- test drug-free, DOT drivers, you know, there's a lot. You still have all of those regulatory costs in there, regardless of whether it's cannabis or it's hemp. So and even so, though some things may possibly relax, uh, I mean, just to certify your quality as and your percentages, that's yeah. probably not likely. Well, I, I think that would be the biggest help as far as the hemp industry is if they were to um, expand the, uh, you know, the limit from 0.3 to 1.0. And so it'll, it would make it much easier on the field. Point three is not very much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's a very small and, amount. You know, and, it, and it, that plant can produce a lot in its last two weeks of life. So it's a it's a very you know fine line to, to make sure it's harvested, done, and hanging. You know, and, and still at a legal basis. Um, you know, however, you're still going to have the, the need for for either high CBD to THC ratio um, versus the, the marijuana. So you still have two various different needs. Um, so maintaining that ratio, I guess, is that something that you're able to, uh, I guess, uh, play with in the field? Or is that entirely based on genetics? You just kind of have to plant it and hope it turns out. I am going to say that I could not properly answer that yet. Okay. Um, whether different nutrients would change that ratio or not, I, I couldn't say. I, as I said, I mentioned the the one gal that up around Buffalo, you know, ours turned out somewhat different. Yet I know our THC levels were dang near the same, which suggests a different ratio to me. Mm-hmm. So genetically. If we're going to go along the genetics line, you'd have to say they would have turned out exactly the same. Yeah. Uh, but they did not. So maybe so, some epigenetics playing in there where the environment uh, changes the expression of those genes or... I would have to say so. Okay. Um, I'd probably get argued with a lot on that one. You know, however, you know, we did have, like I said, two, uh, two, two of those strains were grown in two different areas and, and with different results, yet THC level was the same. So our ratios were different. Um, and that's, I think there's just so much that's unknown at this point. I, I can tell you that how many people told me that crop would never survive that snowstorm. Right. And it did. Um, there wasn't one that said it would survive that. <laughs> out of, you know, just because I was looking for, you know, you, you have X amount of avenues. You have the internet, you have Facebook, you have Facebook groups, you have, uh, you know, and most all of them was like, you know what, you just better pray. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and the two strains, it didn't, you know, besides some, uh, you know, a little bit of frostbite, things like that, it didn't affect them at all. Um you know, and then once the state came, we were able to harvest at least the branches that got broken, you know, because of course they're not getting fed anymore. Right. Um, by the plant. 
so we we harvested what we called the body parts <laughs> and so uh, <laughs> that was our first harvest which actually worked out good we got a taste of harvest there wasn't even a lot of information on that out there uh, so we were able to see exactly how dry it needs to be and, and how much room it was going to take and it takes a lot of room you know we had 1300 feet of line strung up and, and it takes a lot of room so um, we'll be able to finesse that a little bit this year to where we can pull even more in at a time it's it's definitely something that it you know takes some time to I think finesse all the different uh, um, avenues of what you have to do and last year at every stage we'd have all kinds of people what are you going to do with it and my reply pretty much was, I don't know yet. Um, we're seeing if it can even grow. Mm-hmm. And that was, um, that, that was my probably most, most popular answer last year was, I don't know. Um, and you know, my poor dad, he's 80. He's, you know, pretty excited about it. He actually tried to, to come out and help with at least one thing on, on every part of the field, whether it be pull the weed, uh, you know, pull some water line in, pull some, uh, you know, do some bucking in the field, but he wanted at least, you know, at least half an hour on, on, you know, each part so that he could say that he helped all the way through. And, uh, and that part's, you know, was exciting, you know, but we really didn't know what to expect at every, every different level. It's, um, we just had to see if we could even get it to a harvest. And so I believe, let me see, the final one was October 10th. And so it, you know, it went through a lot of 32 degrees. It hit some 29s. Um, it, it's just much more hardy than, than people think on that one. Whether it's just these strains or not, I don't know. And then that remains to be seen. But that's that's where we're going to rotate some of the strains and you know try something different each year. How did it do on uh, water consumption for you? Water consumption is, you know, they, they don't need as much water as one would think. I, I know that the fiber crop went a long time without water, uh, or excuse me, the seed crop, mm-hmm. um, just from, from what I had heard from a fairly good source. But um, And is that grower, um, from what you're hearing, was he, you know, ceasing watering to let the seed dry, or was he just saying that in the growth cycle itself it was doing fine? Well, I think we just had such a dry spell okay. this year. Yeah, we did. Um, I don't think it was planned. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it was just that we had a tremendous dry spell. And so while these definitely, and I don't know if that's a difference between the strains or not, I can't say that these could have gone six weeks without water. Um, it was a balancing act on how much water to give them. There was many times probably that I didn't need to water them, uh, that I did. Um, I, I think that that's just something to finesse out a little bit more this year. So we didn't have any uh, major losses at all. Um, the uh, I, I can say the main, you know, we had about 20 males that we had to call out of the field. And we had about 1,033 growing, so, you know, it wasn't a, a killer bad rate of the males. But that was probably our highest loss was just, you know, having to uh, get rid of those. And so water, I, I wouldn't recommend putting 
where you have no access to water. But I, I can say that the water consumption wasn't overly high. How was it compared to, say, like your hay field? Or did you water less? I, I watered that hay field way more okay. than I probably watered those, the hemp. Um, I mean, it was the wind, between the wind and the, um, the heat, the hay field was, I, I could pour on two inches and, and it was dry in, in a day or two, oh, if wow. that even. Yeah, running that pivot from, from one end to the other actually was, was dry at the beginning. So I, I put way more water this year on that hay field than I've ever probably put before. And yet, you know, the hemp could go much longer without water. Nice. Um, let's see. Oh, the so the males, um, you mentioned that you lost, you know, a, a percentage of them. When you pull those from the field, are you, uh, one, having to get inspection to verify that they're destroyed or two are you you know putting those in the drying pile for chipping later are you having to burn them um typically those are they consider part of the ag process to cull those males Uh they unless you completely missed one you're pulling them so early that there's pretty much no thc no anything in those plants they start showing their, you know, their, their sex early in the flowering stage. Mm-hmm. And so they're technically, I guess, for, for hemp purposes or for, let's say, CBD slash THC, at that point, they're worthless. Okay. Um, so they're just, you know, it, it's just something you basically pull and destroy. I wondered the same thing, you know, emailed the state, said, boy, you know, does, does this count like as a harvest if I'm pulling them? But it, like I said, at that stage in the game, they're, um, they don't, they don't even have enough built in them for anything. Uh, so we, we would just, your big thing is to garbage bag them. Um, even we caught all ours very, very early mm-hmm. and I'm going to say it's more genetics. They say stress will cause wonder hermaphrodite. I, I myself, my own opinion is that it's more genetics. You're either going to get them or you're not because there's no more stress than having 10 inches of snow dumped on you and we never had one after that. Okay. Um, you think so, that could have been the age of the plants as well? or? No, I, it, it, uh, as far as the, the hermaphrodite thing, um, I think that's just genetics. It's whatever seed you get, you're going to get X perma- or percentage of your hermaphrodites. Some of them say like a 99%. So one out of a thousand is going to be, you know, turn out to be a hermaphrodite mm-hmm. on feminized seed. Um, you know, but other, you know, schools of thought are that if the plant gets too stressed, it will hermaphrodite. And I, so I, uh, I can't say I agree with that school of thought just yet because you know you just wouldn't uh, i would have expected a zillion of them after the storm yeah i've got stocks that are split in four that are still growing but that you know not not one male was found after that so um so yes it's it's a lot of information on deciding which one you're going to go with mm-hmm. um you might get you know, on, on one procedure, you may have 10 steps, you'll find it's missing two of them, and you need to keep going to find those other two in, in another 
suggestive article somewhere else so and, and put it all together so there there isn't really one good answer for everything so I have a, a bit of a fascinating thought that came to mind uh, when you mentioned that you didn't really have any regulatory issue uh, discarding the young males um, I don't want to say loophole because that might have like a negative connotation to it but if one were you know intentionally growing young plants for say animal fodder or something like that uh, would that be something that regulatorily speaking anyway would be a little more feasible you'd simply have to get it um, approved and licensed through the state right I you know I am not sure on regulatory for growing for consumption mm-hmm. I don't believe that you can do that but I don't want to uh, I don't want to answer that that would be something I'd have to direct you to the state to ask for right um, I if you were growing you know, the, the whole world changes if it's for animal consumption that and especially if that animal is going to then be consumed by humans mm-hmm. so I would have to direct anyone to call the state yeah and the state will probably have to catch up on that I I know that historically um, there was a lot of feeding of fodder to animals from hemp and I don't know if it was grown specifically for that or if it was more of a, a thing kind of like a, I don't know like tree hay or, or sorghum fodder or something like that where it might be a byproduct of another process on the farm um, yeah and I, I, I know there's different regulations for that um, you know but being is that we um, you know weren't growing for any, anything like that with that crop I I, I would not be able to answer that and, and be 100% correct at all. Fair enough. Um, just a fascinating thing that kind of, I don't know, crossed my mind. It is. Yeah. Um, it is. They say that it's very good for cattle. They, you know, I know there's some areas probably that let, um, there's there's some fields that just harvest the flower and leave the rest up and, and put animals into graze. Mm-hmm. I, I can't say that... Uh, you know, until I heard more research, more that I would ever do that, that here, um, you know, but the, uh, but I do know that some areas do do that. Yeah, definitely, definitely an interesting thing. And I, I, I've heard a little bit as well that it can be uh, good for the animals. Um, and this is just going off of memory, but I seem to remember some research being alluded to um that it was resulting in a little bit of a higher cbd content in the meat um and not necessarily to the extent that you would have in say a tincture where you're concentrating that cbd but definitely an interesting thread to pull if if one were wanting to get into that and i'd imagine that a grass-fed beef having a premium on it hemp-fed beef or hemp finish might be quite the premium <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I I just don't know enough on that part of it to uh, to be in very intelligent mm-hmm. there, uh, especially once it comes down to regulations as far as the the in consumption. Yeah, more of a a thing of speculation, I suppose. Um, it, it would be it'd be complete speculation. So we've kind of run quite a decent gambit on this. Uh, we've talked about you know, how you got into it, uh, some of your growing practices and, 
and challenges with it. Um, I guess we've mentioned that you're doing a little bit indoors. Uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about that indoor operation. Is there obviously probably a smaller scale for you? Um, oh, it's a, it, it's a much smaller scale, and mm-hmm. and part of it is just to uh, you know I'm I'm growing two completely different strains than we grew outside last year. Uh, we should have those you know to a point where I can uh, you know make a decision whether to put those outside or not. Uh, we will probably continue on with two of the strains that we did last year for sure. And as I said, that when you have to buy that many seeds I'm actually you know probably have enough now to to start the grow for for next year we the seedlings are a little different than some of the other ones we killed a ton of them at the beginning and they would be fine you would look at them and they were perfectly fine and two hours later you could walk back and they were just all laying there and dead it's like what did I do did I look at you cross-eyed um you know I made about Ten different changes to the way that I uh, germinated them inside, and you know they like it, and so you know one one step ahead on that this year. So um, that's mainly on the inside. So I don't have a lot of insight yet. We haven't, uh, you know, I've, I've had two strains, and uh, and they're doing very well at this point, and you know I'll know more on those and probably. I'm going to say March, um, as far as to how they turned out. You can, um, you know, the one thing about hemp is you can't hurry it up unless it's inside. Mm -hmm. It's completely driven by the light. So whether you plant the plants in, let's say, July, you know, or you plant them June 1st, um, the light controls when they start to flower. So you might have a plant that's six inches tall that starts to flower. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're completely light driven. So the inside, you know, will grow to a certain height and then, you know, we'll switch that lighting over to where they start to flower. And then at that point, you still have another probably eight weeks or so, just depending on the strain. And, and, and all still driven by light. So... Um, so that's your biggest difference inside versus out is to be able to control the height a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, you could actually keep them in a vegetative state, you know, for much, much longer. If you had the room and the lighting that they need, you know, you could get an indoor plant still way up there in, in height. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that's your biggest benefit is your more controlled environment. Interesting. Um, so are you, when you pay to get a strain license, does that license you for, say, the calendar year? Or do you have to pay per crop so that your indoor crop would cost more per unit to produce? Well, your license is is not a per strain on the license. It's a license to grow um, or grow, produce, um, process. So, um, you know, where your testing is is you have to have each individual strain tested. Okay. Uh, so if you have four, you know, you have time frames that you need to schedule that testing. So uh, if you have four that aren't quite ready at the same time and you have to have them out separate times, 
you're paying essentially for their trip time, which, um, you know, is I, I don't know if they'll change that every year. Uh, last year was $200, you know, for that part of it. Then you also pay for the lab testing. So if, if your strains are all ready at one time and you can have them test all four at one time, that's great. Um, you know, if they're, they're not, then you would have separate trip charges on there. So, uh, and then you're, of course, per strain on the testing. Okay, so that so, can quickly stack up. So it's it's all yeah, it's kind of an inter intertwined. But your your base license uh, would be that give you the licensing to grow. Okay. Um, and so, you know, if it's inside outside, doesn't necessarily matter at that point. Um, you know, but you you know have to be good at detailing all your areas out and. You know, even down to GPS coordinates, uh, so that you know they have a, you know the exact GPS coordinates of your either your field or your inside. Okay. Um, so obviously, if you're having to pay for testing uh, for each strain, you know, there's got to be a certain break-even point where if you grow, say, one or two plants, it's probably not worth paying for that testing uh, for the crop that you'd get out of it. Uh, and if you grew, say, ten thousand, you know, then you're amortizing that cost over the whole crop what's your typical right. break-even crop size what are you looking at there i don't think we know yet okay um you know for for definitive sure i don't know that you you know we would know yet your your costs are different inside versus outside mm -hmm. uh, because you know to have all the appropriate lighting and, and the tents lighting. and the mm -hmm. you know and so i don't think we're there yet to say um if you do this, you need to plant 100, you know, 500. Um, you know, our hopes this year was just to break even and, and gain the knowledge. Um, and so, you know, while I think that we're, we're there as far as being able to do that, um, I can't tell you the exact... Uh, you know, the exact numbers yet to say, you know, to make this much, you're going to have to do this. Okay. Um, you know, it's, it's going to be probably another few years before that inflection in the market. Once, once all the states came online, and I believe there's still probably some that, that still need to, um, in certain states, so many people jumped on that it did create a overabundance in that biomass. But what the quality is of it, it's hard to say. Mm -hmm. So there could be, let's say, 50,000 pounds of, of 2% that no one really necessarily wants. So the, the quality is what you're after, not not so much your quantity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, because for the processors, finances uh, probably costs about the same to process a pound of flour, uh, regardless of its content. So if you have a higher percentage, you know, you're probably going to have better economics there for them. Right. And, and, you know, typically when you take your biomass to get processed, um, most of them at this point charge X amount per pound. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you have a thousand pounds, you might be, you know, you could be paying 10 to $20 per pound just to process it. Obviously not worth it if you, yeah, don't have the... So, you know, it, it's a, you know, it, it's a crop that depending on 
once you get to that end of, of, of where, where you go with it. Um, however, there's, you know, costs involved over and beyond growing in the field. Um, if you're going to take it to the oil. Um, so, so that's just another area that I think is going to have to, you know, just happen for a few years to find out, um, you know, where that is. And as, you know, as long as you can break even and learn, then you're, I think you'll, you'll be fine. I think those that jump in, um, and, and go too large at the beginning, it, it may hurt. Um, I, I wouldn't tell anyone to disrupt whatever crop they're growing now, you know, and just jump into it. I, you know, but I would say, boy, by all means, an acre or two and, and start there, I would be all for it. I would echo that. I mean, anytime you're getting in anything new, uh, yeah, definitely wise to kind of dip your toe in the water before you jump head first into a boiling pot i you know one thing we didn't have this year was a hailstorm you know a a big hailstorm could have been dramatic Mm -hmm. you know that might have done way more damage than any snow um there's just so many factors that we still haven't hit um you know luckily we're not in a a high hail area but uh, you know had it happened Uh that could have been a lot more destructive yeah, I, I recall from uh, when I lived in Cheyenne when I was younger, trying to grow crops down there. And I had more than one year where I got crops going pretty good, and then a hailstorm came in and just completely wiped them out. And I've heard from, you know, some other uh, market gardeners and farmers that have had, you know, thirty forty thousand dollars $40,000 of crops destroyed in, within 30 minutes. I mean, that's all it takes. Yeah. You know, so there's just so many other risks that have nothing to do with uh, how you grew or what you grew mm-hmm. uh, or whether you were under or over the point three. There's there's other risks and you know that are inherent in there that you have to be willing to accept. Yeah. Um, and once you accept those, to realize that if it uh, you know has South Bell size hail come down and and your field is completely destroyed the next day, you know then you, then you're okay. Um, the night of the storm, it was more, it was, it was disappointing to watch those plants go from six foot tall to basically, you couldn't even tell there was ever a plant there. Yeah, that uh, was the a pictures very are pretty snow. dramatic. Yeah. <laughs> you know, however, we were well prepared that it could happen, mm-hmm. um, that, that we could get that freeze, we could get that snow, and so we just... You know, we stayed up all night long, shook those plants, and and uh, and you dealt with it, and you you just hoped for the best. But if you know, if they didn't make it, they didn't make it. That was the risk we took. Yeah, farming is risky business, as I say. You know, it is, and so you just have yeah. to be. Uh, you know, it was more the dramatic amount of work we spent all summer long. Um, you know, the, the and you just kind of almost get to be on a on a more personal level with those plants than, than other farming. It, it was quite interesting. Um, you know, in fact, we're, we're out there, we're harvesting and we're like, you know, uh, you know, we'll see you, see you later. You did good. And, um, you know, but you're even talking to them as you're, as you're harvesting them. But, um, you know, so it'll be, it, you know, it'll be nice to have the field back again next year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, uh... 
one of the benefits of intensive management with crops is that personal connection. Um, <laughs> it, it definitely was. It's like your fight is over. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Interesting. Um, one question I know that I think I may have forgot to ask, uh, nutrient lines and kind of what you're using for fertilizer both out in the field and indoors if there's any difference there um and are you growing hydroponically indoors or still using soil how's that work no still using soil um and uh as far as nutrients not not much difference um you know we we stuck with organically as much as possible um we never used any herbicides or or pesticides um pests are very attracted to him uh so we did pretty well there, I think, um, as far as uh, not having any dramatic, you know, bug issues. But there are a lot of pests that are quite attracted to him. What kind of uh, bugs in your research are are typically going after it? And you know, aphids, spider mites. Um, you know, there's actually they're they're quite many things that are quite attracted to them. Once the flowers get going, there's there's different, uh, even corn-like type worms. Okay. The, you know, that's another consideration is when they're flowering and, and you've got that going on. If you have too much rain, then you, you've got another issue going on with your flowers. So it's, you know, it's a comprehensive crop to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, I was definitely, you know, in need this summer of, of just being able to spend um, a lot of time keeping my mind on something, and so it, it was a uh, a lot of learning there. But uh, you know, hopefully, as far as the inside, I you know, ladybugs that was your best friend, and so they they tend to eat much of the other non desirables, and so we happen to have quite a few this year, and that that I think helped dramatically. Nice. Yeah, I've heard that ladybugs can be pretty helpful with the crop indoors. Um, uh, both in and out. Um, you know, and even down to, we had uh, we had a lot of baby ladybugs after the storm. And so it, uh, which was quite interesting. They they don't look anything like you think they'd look like. So at first when you see one, you're, you're thinking a, a new bug invaded you and, and it's just a baby ladybug. Yeah, those uh, the little like nymphs or whatever they call them. Yeah, yeah, they're, you know, completely, uh, completely odd-looking for a ladybug, but... Yeah. So are you doing anything to encourage ladybugs outdoors? I mean, obviously, indoors, you can, you know, even buy them online, but uh, how are you dealing with that outdoors? Just hoping they show up, or...? You know, if they don't show up, you would release some. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, like I said, we uh, had just plenty of them to... Uh, uh, beast out there and they they kept everything you know fairly well pest free so you know but if we did not have that um happen you would just probably release those well in my experience typically if you have a healthy soil and plants and you're managing organically you tend to see your pests uh, and predators balance out over time yeah and you're uh, you know and as long as you kind of keep keep all of that at a, at a balance though so, you know it and, and that we were able to do pretty well. Um, but it's, like I said, they're, they can be a finicky plant. So they, 
you know, you can use just a little bit too much of one thing and have, have it go the other side. So between your phosphorus and you have your calcium and your magnesium and your um, a lot of other different issues and pH level to look at. And uh, you could be feeding them all the nutrients in the world and have your pH level be wrong and, and it's not even uptaking those. So. Yeah, a lot of variables. Um, many, many variables. And so, and that's where I think the insight was just a a chance to study a little more of those variables. So the field that you chose, uh, was that previously hay field? Have you been gardening there for a few years or did you do anything particular to amend that prior to planting? No, um, it had grown hay and alfalfa, however, that was an area that, to be honest with you, was just more horse pasture than anything. Um, the timing of everything last year, I probably did not get as much field prep as I would have liked to. So uh, that'll be different this year. But the plan to be approved to even obtain a license wasn't done until February. And so everything was a bit tight last year to, to do that. So this year... You know, I will have all that done much earlier, and hopefully that reduces some of the uh, the work in adjusting the, the pH levels in the soil. And our pH level is pretty good. Uh, we did not have to adjust that much at all in that area. But, uh, you know, any nutrients that we can put in, I think that'll be much easier this year. Nice. More time. Time right. was crunched. I, I heard about that. Time, I heard it was, was really stretched. tight this year. Yeah, so so we have much, much more planning time this year than, than even before. Um, we had, you know, of course, known in 2019 as the legality of growing was there. Uh, it wasn't legal until you could obtain the license. Um, my husband and I had, um, had planned to grow and had some of that worked out, and he had very unexpectedly passed away and so it was a decision you know made between my daughter and I to uh, you know to continue that and you know which which we did so I think he'd be pretty proud of us at this point good I'm sorry to hear that <clears throat> I, uh... But, uh, yeah. but yeah it uh, it it went well so I I uh, you know, encourage anyone to, to definitely try it, uh, stay small, make sure you have an area to um, harvest and dry those plants. That's, that's critical right there. Um, you know, and enough help during harvest. It's, it, it's intensive. It's, it's get the plants out of the field, get them hung correctly, get them to the correct dryness level, which, which was a hard mentality, uh, growing hay to dry in hemp. Um, when you dry that hemp, it's, it looks completely worthless. It looks like, you know, you're just crunching it into a bag. Mm-hmm. Um, and the hay mentality in the back of your head is thinking, oh, it's too dry. You know, you're, you're hurting all the nutrients, but that's not the case. You know, and then be able to get that bucked off of those plants to, to clear your lines to be able to get the next batch in from the field um, and get all of that before a snowstorm. So, you know, one thing I would have to say is that had a just killer snow weather event come there you know there's one thing they can handle some colder temperatures but if they freeze 
freeze or not, um, you know, is, is another story of whether, you know, they're, if their cell walls break, they're, they're done. They're, they're at that point fairly worthless. Um, however, would I even even had enough room to bring that whole entire crop in at one time and get it dry? And I wouldn't have. So, you know, that's one other consideration is that you, you are going to have X amount of room, whether it be 400 plants, um, you know, or a thousand to get it out of the field and get it hung somewhere to, uh, you know, if there is an adverse weather uh, coming in. So it's just something else to keep in mind. So probably part of your initial investment should be drying facilities. Uh, you know, at least have a plan. Um, you know, I think that the, they say that the, probably a, a very high amount of, of new hemp farmers fail at the harvest, and I can see why. It, mm-hmm. it's, it is intensive. It's, it's work. Uh, and it's, uh, uh, however, ours were all done by hand and, and bucked by hand. And so, uh, you know, and they say there's, um, you know, your best in quality is, is when you can do that all by hand. Um, but you definitely feel it for, for days. Um, mm-hmm. Like I said, it was, it was six weeks of harvest. Um, not counting probably the last set, you know, to get that bucked down into uh, bags. But that was, that was a pretty good feeling on those last few pieces to, uh, to get those bucked and those bags sealed. Oh, I bet. Yeah. Um. <laughs> I can't say it, it wasn't. I mean, at least the last one, you can wait a little bit longer and not have that sense of uh, time, but you're you're definitely on a schedule to, to keep getting it out of the field before any weather. I, I can't remember. The the last one was on the 10th, and I think it was that, if that was Saturday, and then the next day they predicted that, that storm that would be 20 degrees or something, and seeing that would have done them in. So we had a a definitive have to have them out of the field by that day. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. I, I've done a, a little bit of pastured poultry over the last few years, and that's a pretty labor-intensive uh, enterprise, but it definitely sounds like hemp has me beat. <laughs> <laughs> well, so. you know, it, it's hard to say. There, there are some crops, and I, I think, you know, to folks that don't grow, you know, they don't, realize as much effort as go into some of these crops um Mm -hmm. you know but uh you know and 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 all crops are susceptible to the freeze and so we had everyone having to uh to get things out of that field but uh, you know on on the hemp you know one of those things that you know it, it doesn't continue to grow once you harvest it out of there and it um so it wouldn't have uh except for the two strains we probably would have been okay, but not not fantastic on percentage. But you know, they would have produced something. Um, the other two strains, like I said, would have, it would have been a waste of time to even pull them out of the field um, at that point. So letting them get buried was about the only option. Mm-hmm. But yeah, our six foot, foot our let me see, our six footers were about two maybe 10 inches <laughs> after oh, that, wow. if that you couldn't even hardly tell there were any plants there it was pretty amazing just completely buried huh it just buried them wow um, and it did it so fast uh-huh. that, that, that snow was so heavy that night it, it just did it so fast we would have had to have a crew of 25 people probably to try to you know go, going up and down those rows to keep the snow off of them that's crazy yeah and that i mean that obviously that disrupted a lot of things around town i 
I happened to benefit a little bit from it, but most people, I think, uh, had a lot of struggles from that storm. So, yeah, it, it was something, you yeah. know, just keeping it off your trees and, uh-huh. you know, all the various places. But, However, yeah. it, it was hardy enough to make it through that and, and continue on because those two strains were very early in flower still. And, uh, you know, they, they ended up producing very, you know, very nice flowers and the, uh, end product has been um, just you know seems to work very well um, for those that have been using the salve or are you know loving what they are getting as far as benefits from that and uh, and that was probably the you know one of the best days is to have that first person call and say we love it um, you know and it helps and so that was that was nice is this, uh, so you're predominantly selling a, say, probably direct-to-consumer? Uh, we actually, it's, it's, for the most part, it's direct-to-consumer and then retail stores. We, overall, um, you know, in the end, I'd like to just probably promote the retail stores. Mm-hmm. Um, like anything that is in demand, there's a million companies out there. Yeah. Um. We need to, of course, you know, prove our spot in that quality line, um, and that that'll take some time. Um, you know, our initial uh, feedback from anybody that has tried it has been just fantastic. Um, so straight lines here in Casper. Uh, we have uh, Ublaze. We'll be carrying it up in Cody and, and Sheridan and Billings. Um, we had Harvest Health and Gillette. Um, it, it's so intensive on the growing side that that doing shipping all the time would be really rough. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's what I was going to say. That was going to be my comment, is with how intensive it is to grow anything you can do to streamline the marketing process uh, while we're yeah. profitable is definitely and, a good idea. You know, and, and Facebook, it's... Uh, is where we try to at least get it out there of what we have, what's going on. Uh, did we get state approval? Um, but we, you know, having our Facebook page out there, getting more likes and getting more awareness, um, you know, is kind of critical. It's, you know, when you look at a picture of a hemp flower, it's going to look identical to cannabis. So anytime you try to, uh, as far as actually do an advertisement for it your Facebook is going to shoot you down Mm -hmm. (laughs) if anybody shares your page that's great Um, and so that's our main way of getting out is if people will take the time to share our page Uh, it's Mountain Grays and Hemp Um, you know that that would help us out a lot Um, just because Facebook's a a great tool but as we all know they're they're very uh, controlling (laughs) so you know they they have uh absolutely you know the page itself is approved they went through i even had to send them uh, test results showing it's all under 0.3 and they say hey that's great and but if you go try to boost an ad you're done (laughs) they're like no can't do that (laughs) just because they said well we know that what you're doing is is legal and it's legit however it looks like one so you can't do it lovely um yeah, but if I've, you go, you know, you can share it all day long. You can do any of that, but you know, doing their paid ads, uh, you you get pre-stopped. <laughs> Lovely. Uh, but you know, maybe one day, I guess. Um, 
you know, they'll, they'll stop that, but they're, um, that's the, you know, I had one that just, I, I mentioned THC free mm-hmm. and they zap you. This is against, you know, cause it has the word THC in it or something, but yeah. <laughs> so then you, you pop on there and say, Hey, um, you know, I disagree with you and they'll come back every time and say, Oh, you're right. You're, you're okay. Um, mm-hmm. and they put, they put the post back up. Um, you know, but boy, when it comes to the, to the boost function or anything else, they'll still, they still just zap you every time. And so, um, so anyways, we have our Facebook page. We, we've got our website. Um, you know, we're definitely, definitely willing to ship to, to anywhere, you know, but, uh, definitely encourage them to go to the retailer if they're, you know, in Casper or, um, you know, in an area that we have, uh, we have been shipping to, uh, some different states, in fact, um, you know, as the, I guess the area has people intrigued as to the quality of the hemp, and so far, I, I have to say, the hemp seems to like it here, our, our quality turned out very well. Good, yeah, I'm, I'm glad so, to hear that. I found it um, kind of, I don't know, something I've been discussing with friends lately. Wyoming's a little unique on the marketing side and that in other states, it seems like you can still do Craigslist with some success and some of them even have their own uh, independent directories for, you know, farm goods or whatever. And uh, in Wyoming, it seems like, you know, really the most effective way of getting to people is Facebook. And It, it is. Yeah. It's a very effective way and... and uh... You know, but then, like I said, on, on anything like CBD or um, that type, you're you're still facing the other side of it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's uh, you know all kinds of groups. Um, you know, but but on these probably on the retail side, you know, if you're dealing with CBD, you then have all whole another set of uh, issues to you know work with, and whether it be growing or or not of, of yours banking um outlets not you know there aren't that many banks that are open to hemp farmers just yet um so so there's just you know every time you turned around there was just something else and i'm I'm just kind of stubborn so you know even on amazon if you get on there you'll notice that it's hemp oil Uh uh, not cbd oil um you know so they could be very uh good uh, producers or manufacturers, you know, yet you'll notice they're, if you were to buy direct from them, they might say CBD oil. If you buy their product from Amazon, it'll say hemp oil. You have to get that CBD off of that label, um, you know, or out of that description, even though it's the same thing. Uh, so it's a very interesting, um, you know, market, but you know, the problem is on some of that is that it opens it up for, um, some different, products where you'll see 40,000 milligrams of CBD in, in a bottle and it's like that's just not going to happen mm-hmm. um, you know but there's a, there's a market for um, and there's probably a way to get around anything so um, so at this point we, we opt to test every batch and, and all our products have a QR code that, that goes directly back to that batch and once that batch is done we won't use that test again we'll we'll retest for the new batch and uh, that way every batch has their own testing instead of uh, you know who's to say you don't just 
run one test and then make enough batches for the next six months off of that one and you really don't know what you're getting so um but that drives your cost up too however it's it's good for the consumer they they need to know that if they sent their bottle that they bought today in themselves they'll get the same results that they have on their bottle Excellent. Well, and it, it seems like you're definitely uh, taking every step to maintain that quality, uh, which is something I can certainly appreciate. That's something I've tried to do with my business and that I I really look for in a farmer is somebody that is uh, really prioritizing that, that quality for the end consumer. Uh, yeah, because that's in the end, that's uh, the, the customer needs to know that is what they're getting. Um, mm-hmm. And there are countless ways for uh, a person to get around that. I I was quite surprised once we got to the testing level of of how many ways you can get around it. Um, You know, however, it's not the way you have integrity in your your growing or your operations. Excellent. Well, um, I suppose I could probably talk all night. You know, being a farmer, I have the gift of gab. But uh, <laughs> maybe uh, let's go ahead and go over some of those last questions, and then I can kind of let you go and sign off on the show. Okay. And, um, that sounds great. And we've kind of gone over some of these a little bit. We'll just go ahead and ask them. So what has been your most successful farming enterprise? Um, we, the hay and alfalfa, we have always grown a very, very good you have in grass alfalfa by the way about 35 okay um what is your main marketing outlet at this point facebook and and i would have well word of mouth um you know you've got facebook which is a incredible tool if you can use it properly um if we can get folks to share our page and you know perhaps share the website you know, then a whole new world opens. Um, even if they don't have any interest in trying CBD themselves, you know, that would be a dramatic help to, you know, to something, and it's grown right here in Wyoming. Um, the secondary would be word of mouth, because once it's, you know, once someone has tried it, they have either, you know, been a repeat person, or they have, you know, told others that have then tried it. So, so word of mouth probably is going to be our most um, powerful just because it's based off results. Well, and I've found uh, through various industries, you know, even my time doing construction and carpentry as a young man, um, that when you 
are able to drive that word of mouth, it really speaks as a testament to the quality of your work and your product. Uh, because if people yes. didn't believe in it, they wouldn't tell it, their friends about it. Exactly. And, uh, you know, being as there's, like I said, there's, there's a lot of products out there and, you know, we need to prove our place in there. I, I, I don't think that just because it's Wyoming grown that it would automatically jump in there, but it needs to be both. And, and I believe ours is. Excellent. Um, okay, so the next one, what is the biggest challenge on your farm? I'd probably still say the biggest challenge is Wyoming weather, even though they're hardy. It's not just the plant's hardiness, but your own hardiness to have to be out there in that. Um, you can't just say, the wind's blowing 70 miles an hour, I don't want to do this today. You still have to go do what you need to do out there. So probably... You know, our, our environment is still, you know, a large part of um, downfalls in Wyoming. Nice. Very, uh, yeah, very insightful. That's something that a lot of people that don't grow even a garden uh, really comprehend with the farming is that, you know, rain or shine or hurricane conditions, uh, if a job needs to be done, it needs to be done. And, oh, exactly. Yeah. I mean, w whether it comes to, to cattle, um, gosh, look at all these uh, ranchers that are out there at, you know, below, you know, zero weather that are having to help calf. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think anyone thinks of what it takes uh, in just not only stamina, but preserve that they, they don't get to just sit in front of TV and, and look outside and say, hey, it's cold. They have to. Yep. Uh you know, and for everything that, that has to be done at that level, somebody else sees them. It probably is even at a worse level that they've got to do. But uh, between ranching and farming, I, I don't think anyone has any ideas of the um, the things that has to be done and, and can't just be put out till the weather's better. Excellent. Um, all right, so this next one is it's a fun question for me because I've got a fun story with it. Um, but what is the worst thing that the Wyoming wind has done to you? Oh, worst thing that Wyoming wind has done. Um, <laughs> I can think of so many. Um, <laughs> it's kind of epic around here, isn't it? <laughs> oh, it is. It is. Um, yeah, that, that's a, that's a bad one just because I can, uh, you know, you can think of, of, having things just ripped off the tractor and having to haul butt to try to find it, you can, things, uh, it just, it, it's so many that it's hard to answer. Fair enough, fair enough. I, gosh, I, uh, oh, I got to think on that one just to say what's the worst one. Well, I'll give you a moment to think, I guess, and fill in by telling you my story. Um, yeah. Listeners that have kind of listened to every episode have definitely heard this. I think it was the first or second episode. Um, but it was a couple summers ago I was out um, at my grandpa's property in Antelope Hills back when I was farming out there. And I was uh, checking on some chicks, some layer chicks I had in a small uh, pasture pen. And I had my... Uh, Joel Salatin style chicken tractor uh, sitting up on a higher part of the property. Oh, I'd say about 150 yards away from here or so. 
And as I'm checking on these chicks, I look up and I see this dust devil um, on the other side of the draw. And this is a 40-acre property, so it's a decent ways away. I go, oh, well, that's neat, you know, and I figure I'll watch it for a bit. And it happens to snake its way right over to that, that pasture pen. And this is a 10 by 12 pen uh, built with aluminum sheeting and, and cedar planks. So it's, it's not the heaviest thing in the world, but I definitely, you know, just thought it would maybe at worst take the lid off of it or something. Well, this dust devil proceeded to pick up the salatin pen about 20 to 30 feet in the air. And I'm watching it just rise and rise, and then the dust devil turns and starts heading towards me. And at that point, I kind of freaked out, and I bolted the other way, um, and the pen crashed down behind me. It had gotten picked up, like I said, about 20, 30 feet in the air, and then smashed down. And this is a couple weeks before I had chicks due to arrive on the farm, so I had to completely rebuild this pasture pen, uh, which was hundreds of dollars. So that's that's my really bad Wyoming wind story. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, uh, like I said, boy, I just can think of so many. We're, we, you know, where we're at, there's somewhat of a wind tunnel a bit right here. Um, so we just get so many. <laughs> yeah, I, just, I can just think of, of plants laying flat that we just literally planted. Um, you know, they ended up okay. Well, although I have to say that there was probably a couple missing after that. Um, <laughs> Pulling them you know, straight out of the ground. I, yeah, I can just, uh, like I said, that I'm just going to have to say it made for some very rough days. Um, pulling the plastic um, for the hemp plants last year, we couldn't get a day without wind, and we needed to get that up. Um, so in fact, there's on our Facebook page, there's some pictures, I think, of, uh, you know, us trying to pull that, and you're talking 600-foot stretches at a time, and Man. it went just, it was just trying to blow it into the hayfield. I um, hate dealing with plastic shooting in the wind. <laughs> you know what I did? We, I, I don't know that we'll do the same this year. Um, you know, we, of course, wanted it completely pulled up out of the field. That was rough. Mm-hmm. Um, did it have something to do with them making it through the snowstorm? Maybe. So I'm, I'm really back and forth on that one. That's fair. Um, you know, but it was, uh, you know, pulling that was probably, I'm going to have to say the worst part of all of it was pulling that plastic and making sure it was completely up before the, uh, snow started flying. And so... So that the wind during that time was not helpful at all. Um, so, so I'd have to say that one uh, because that made for a miserable about four days of, of pulling that plastic. Oh man, yeah, I can I can relate a little bit, but um, my condolences for the wind. <laughs> <laughs> I know it was just you would just you know, and it was one of those things where we couldn't wait. Um, it, it had to get done. There, there was just points that you have to, you know, get it done or you're not going to get it done over the winter. So, uh, so just kind of another one of those examples of, of would love to sit here and just kind of watch it, but it's not going to happen. So. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, name the one thing you think would benefit Wyoming agriculture the most. I think overall 
number one. Uh, but, you know, we'll go back to the cattle rancher that has to go out in, uh, you know, whatever weather that might be, it could be 20 below and help a calf. I, I think if more people paid attention to what these farmers and ranchers have to do to actually get the product on their table would help all of Wyoming Ag. Um, there's so many that, that look at the, the, the price of meat and uh, just don't even stop to think of what it takes to get it there. Yeah, I've definitely um, run into that. Especially, you know, we get a lot of these commodity markets where they're you know, maybe various levels of subsidies from the production of the feed for the animal to the housing to the animals themselves, what have you. Um, and, you know, it it seems to an uneducated consumer that it's possible to raise, say, a chicken for, you know, pennies on the dollar compared to what it actually costs to raise one in your backyard, let alone exactly. on a production scale um, accounting for loss and such. So... Yeah, education yeah, so, is a foundation for a, a, a whole lot of things, I guess. So, yeah, I, uh, I, I think if there was a, um, you know, place where more or less, even more information could be shown for, you know, videos of what they do at 20 below when they have a calf that needs to come, um, you know, the, the customer, or not customer, but just general um, knowledge of the behind the scenes, you know, makes folks understand a lot better, you know, once they go and they'll actually pay a higher price for those animals that were taken well care of. Uh, they'll realize the, you know, sure it didn't cost them anything to go out necessarily 20 below zero except for their their actual physical discomfort which is you know it's worth something Mm -hmm. um and they can't wait it it doesn't matter what the temperature is it doesn't matter if it's pouring down rain you know it it doesn't matter it's got to be done well and there can absolutely be financial costs of that as well i mean when you're talking about the wind um how that can be a problem if you're out working in the wind and it causes you you know, damage to your equipment, your buildings, or, you know, whatever the case, well, so that has a cost. Well, it's definitely wear and tear. Um, uh-huh. You know, the wind carries with it so much dust and dirt that gets in the uh, engines, and, I, you know, it, it's a dramatic amount of wear occurs with the wind. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so this one is kind of all about you we've kind of touched on this a little bit but i would like to more or less finish with this where can listeners find you if they're looking for you or your product well we have a, a website uh that is uh, mountainhorizonhemp.com and like i said we're we're definitely shipping out to areas that you know don't have a retailer available yet um you know we're trying to stick with one retailer in a city so as not to uh, you know to benefit the, at least the, the local retailer also to where we're not oversaturating the area um, we still you know that we still have a few cities that we're looking in fact for stores to to uh, partner with and then we can also be found on Facebook at Mountain Horizon Hemp and there we just share different uh, you know pictures of the field and, and different pictures of the things that we have to do to to get it 
it's kind of a fun page that uh, you know we try to at least educate and share when we pass the uh, state tests, or I should say when and if. And um, that, that's always a nail-biting time. It, it takes about you know five days or so from the time they come. That'd be so a long we, five you know, days. Well, it is. I mean, in, in pretty much you're growing all summer long with the, that thought in the back of your head. That, mm-hmm. You know, gosh, hopefully this is not a hot strain. Um, and you do everything you can to, to pick that right strain. But, uh, um, you know, that, that doesn't necessarily mean that, that you did it. So, um, you know, any industry has, has a large variety of, uh, you know, outlets to buy your seeds. You know, you pick that one that's not so scrupulous and, and um, you know, can mean failure for your field. So, um, you know, I, but anyways, we, we do share all of that on, on Facebook and, and we'd love for anybody to, to share our page and, and keep getting it out that we're here and uh, going into year number two. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you very much, Deidre. I've learned an awful lot over the last two hours. Um, there's things about growing this crop that I would have never even thought about and I'm sure that a lot of our listeners are finding a lot of information as well that's pretty new with this um, so I really appreciate your time I uh, have a tremendous amount of respect for you and the amount of grit and determination it takes to start with a new crop uh, let alone one that's so intensive and in a year that was so terribly challenging for I mean not just everybody else but you in particular um, so well, definitely challenging and, and, uh, you know, and if anyone has questions, uh, you know, feel free to message us. Um, I typically get back to anyone very quickly. Uh, there's a lot of probably misinformation in the CBD world also, and, um, probably no, no straighter place to get it except for out of the grower's mouth. So, um, certainly can, can help if, uh, you know, have questions regarding, you know, what it does and, and what it can do and how it works. Especially a grower with as much time researching as it sounds like you have. Oh, I, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure I slept much all summer long. <laughs> <laughs> you would uh, work in the field all day and then you researched all night long, literally. Uh, you know, however, that's what it took to get it done. It, it just wasn't something you could uh, walk away from and um, and ignore the problem. You needed to... to you know, find your solution or find your, your steps for the, for the next phase or, um, you know, but, but we got through that one and then, and finally got to, I think I probably slept about 14 hours after that last harvest. So. Wow. All right. Well, uh, yeah, thanks again. Um, I guess we'll go ahead and hang up here. Uh, would you just email me a link to your Facebook page and website, any other links you want me to share in the show notes? I'd be glad to put those out for you. Oh, sure. I sure will. All right. Okay. Well, well that sounds you. good. Thanks, I'll Deidre. I'll send you those links, and you have a, a good evening. You as well. Okay. Mm, bye-bye. Bye. All right. Well, there we are, folks. Uh, first interview, wonderful interview with Deidre. Um, learned an awful lot. I hope that you enjoyed it, found it entertaining and informative. Um, I've got just a little bit of editing to do here, a couple of minutes that we needed to pull out, uh, not a whole lot of problems, um, with the recording itself, a little bit of issues with, uh, dogs in the background, and I'm actually a little distracted. I've got a 
it sounds like I've got a mouse to kill. It's winter, and uh, sometimes we have issues. And that little guy is scratching away. I've been really trying to pay attention to the the podcast so I can get a good episode out for you. But I gotta gotta get out of here and uh, deal with that. So anyway, um, with that being said, thank you again for listening to the Wyoming Agriculture Podcast. Now go on and grow on.